Major League Baseball did a did a great job of getting their the names of their stars out there. You could, I mean, how many times? How when can you name a, a bona fide star player in the MLB now? Can I can think- most fans name one? I can name several who should be, but uh, yeah, that's certainly in terms of if I was not, you know, a baseball nerd to the nth degree, uh, I might not be able to name, you know, Mike Trout, which is depressing and embarrassing, honestly. And I will be embarrassed by that. Yeah, that's, but see, it's the thing. When I think of Mike Trout, when I think of like Bryce Harper and Mike Trout, I think of George Brett. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. The, yeah. the, just steadily excellent year in, yeah. year out, just steadily Excellent, even to the point where people kind of take that for granted. I'm as a Royals fan. I, I took that I took that 325, 3100 for granted because you knew George was gonna give that to you. Yeah. But casual fans and even people who weren't fans, my mother is not a baseball fan, knows who George Brett is. Yeah, knows who George Brett is at the same time, but also at that time in baseball, think of the number of players that were in the public consciousness. They they were, I mean, you think of I can name I can name a bona fide all star on each team, or circa 1980. Now, like you said, there are many players who should be out there like that, and they're not, and it's sad. Like people, Mike Trout should be everywhere. Yes, I should be turning on my TV, and I should see Mike Trout pitching cars, and pitching. I should see him pitching cars and pitching. I could see him being an Aqua Velva man now. <laughs> Because remember, Aqua Velva had all the base. Aqua Velva had enough people pitching that product to have their own team <laughs> back in 1980. Even George Brett was on one of those ads. It, uh, Aqua Velva wasn't. You never get a second chance to make a first impression, was it? Was that? Uh... No, no, that was the no, that was the shampoo. Aqua Velva okay. was the aftershave lotion. Yeah, there's something right. about an Aqua Velva <laughs> man. That, that's how it permeates. I was. I was nine when that ad was on and they had the ad where they literally had like, they had like a full team of baseball players on this, of star players on this ad. I mean, like Pete Rose, Ron say, George Brett, Joe Morgan. See, that's what I'm talking about. You could rattle those names off and people will know. And, and even cat, the most casual fan will know who you're talking about. If you said the name Vita blue in 1980, my mom would know who you're talking about. Yeah, well, if you, well said even, and even, blue, if you said Vita Blue, that meant you were watching an endorsement deal for cocaine, so. <laughs> oh, God. See, Sorry. you didn't need Sorry to bring, Willie, at, least you didn't, at least you didn't say Willie Wilson. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> or Willie Mays Aikens. I mean, come on, we knew. Yeah. That's another thing. We knew, even at that young age, we knew. Mm. Our our center fielder like nose candy. (laughs) 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 But but that's but that was the thing about baseball then is that uh, a George, ironically from the pine tar game, George George Brett got a commercial out of that. Yes, I've seen it. Uh, Yeah, the from Emory overnight freight got him. He had a deal (laughs) where he's like, there's like some Emory like. The Emory guy's delivering his bat. Yeah. Yes. I, I, <laughs> and then I, he's like acting like, oh, I'm swinging the bat. I'm George Brett. George comes up and says, maybe you need a little pine tar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, if you have a moment like that, it's, and you're willing to play along with it. And I'm, George Brett is willing to play along with just about anything. That's one of the, his best qualities. So, yeah, it, well, the, the door is right there if you want to walk through it for any endorsement deal for it. 
Uh, well, I, I will say one of the and in the times, I mean, working working in media in the Midwest and running into George Brett, like especially Royal Carav Royals Caravan time, the time when they're like driving to get people to to buy season tickets, and in the nineties, they were trying dang hard to get people to buy those season tickets because it was. I mean, it, it was a very disappointing that 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 period in the early to mid nineties is a very disappointing time. He was always always accessible. Yeah, he was always are. accessible. Unlike unlike that other team in Missouri, he was always yeah. accessible. The, the the Voldemort's of baseball, they who shall not the, be named. Yes, the Voldemort's. And, of, oh, you you've got to throw, especially in the mid nineties, George Brett out there because otherwise, I mean, what are you selling? It's the Bob Hamlin era, everybody. Bob no. the Hammer Hamlin. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. And I remember um, when he I remember when he played in Omaha. Hmm. When they sent him down the minors, they would play MC Hammer songs when he came up to bat. I mean, that makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> you got the hammer, you might as well, right? Yeah, Bob Bob Hamlin. He could uh, oh no, in the in the old American Association, he was a world beater. <laughs> the, Couldn't hit the, major league pitching. <laughs> yep. The the hammer of triple A. I think might be. No, oh, but I, but that was a, that was right, and that was a, after the really bad, the really big disappointment for Royals fans, just right off as we had, because we had the player who, quite honestly, could have been could have been in very in very much the next Brett, just a person so good that you take him for granted. Certain person named Vincent Bo Jackson. Oh gosh. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, you talk about all the tools in the world and some, someone who made your jaw drop and someone who was a baseball player who everybody knew. But unfortunately, we knew him because he also played football and football not so good for the hips, as we found out. Yeah, we. but I will say, seeing him as a White Sox, though, playing as well as he did at really 70 75%. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to, it, it's just a testament how great, how much of a great athlete he was. And, yeah. and he's another person that I, quite frankly, I see him as very under, I think he's a bit underrated. I really don't think people now really truly understand. No, you don't understand. You had, you had a modern day, you had a real life folk hero playing sports at that time. You had the Jim, you had the Jim Thorpe of our age. Absolutely. Yeah. Here. And because because his peak was so short because of that injury and because I, I think we we're so far removed from that era where someone who was a two sports star was even conceivable at that level. Yeah. I, I don't think a lot of people are able to kind of transport themselves 30 years back in time and realize just what a nationwide sensation he was yeah. for that couple of years in 89 and, and 90, where just everybody knew what Bo knows meant. Yeah. But, uh... Oh God! You had to bring up bone. You had to bring up bonos. Yeah, because everybody want everybody wanted to be Bo. I wanted <laughs> to. Everyone was like, ever it was Bo mania. Yeah, I think people for. I mean, but that's where, but that's where Major League Baseball was. Mm -hmm. And even yeah, even for... with the strikes in the eighties, that's where Major League Baseball was. And even in the and even somewhat in the nineties, because I remember Ken, Ken Griffey Jr. Mm -hmm. Ken Griffey yeah. Jr., who, Griffey who I still Jr. believe, who I who I still believe is the best, he is the best baseball player I've seen play in person hmm. in yeah, my I mean, lifetime was Ken Griffey. The, one of the sweetest swings I've ever seen in person. That I, I yes. still remember to this day seeing his first home run as a Cincinnati Red against the Cubs in early 2000, and just 
just even the swings and misses were still something to marvel at just because you, you got the full, the full unloading. Uh, and it was almost like when he swung at the end of it, you thought somebody should hang this swing in the Louvre because it, yeah. it is just breathtaking. But uh, also just it just seems like everything he did was so effortless. It's like this this person was born to play baseball. Yes. That's, that's what, what that's what it just looked like. It's like, no, this is God saying, okay, I'm creating a ball player. Yeah. Here yeah. is a, I am pre I am creating the prototype perfect baseball player. Here he is. Yeah. I yeah. I mean I just I it was a joy to watch him play. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. a joy to it was, but but that was back when, and and it's sad that now, it but that was but that but he to me is the last to me the one of the last ball players to really break into that public consciousness and consistently break into it, mm-hmm. not just for a boomlet for a little bit of time like Sosa McGuire with the home run chase. I'm talking year in year out. It got to the point where it's like okay, for a while. When people said the word baseball, their fir- their next sentence was Ken Griffey Jr. Yeah, like like they did, you know, in in the eighties, people said baseball, and one of the first people they thought of was George Brett. George Brett. I mean, yeah. but but then there were so many people that when you said baseball, all these names came out, and right. that was the thing. All all these names came out. People just real. I mean, baseballs individual stars and talents were in the public consciousness. And I think that's what, I think that's what baseball really needs now. And I, and in some ways I think the sporting culture, that wouldn't be a bad thing to have, to have a ball player be in that public consciousness at that level. I think that's something we need. I think that's, I, I mean, I, I think especially in this time, for example, yeah. I uh, think that then, I think that, that a baseball renaissance could be just the thing, just the thing society needs at this moment. Yeah, uh, put a pin in that for a second. We'll jump off that. Uh, I'm going to do a quick show open here, and then we'll get right back on that topic. Uh, okay. This is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, the Outsports Baseball podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network, episode number 27. Oddly enough, the Mike Trout episode of the Three Strikes You're Out podcast. My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports, Baseball Prospectus, and Cubs Den. The other voice you are listening to is a familiar voice to those of you who are regular haunters of the Outsports Podcast Network. Every Wednesday on a fantastic podcast known as the Transporter Room, we have co-host Carly Chardonnay-Webb joining us here on Three Strikes You're Out. Carly, thank you so much. Ken, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here to talk a little bit of baseball and harken back to a moment that still lives in infamy if you're a Royals fan, but yeah. it's just great being on the show. You do a great, you do a great podcast. It is my pleasure to have you on and you guys do a fantastic podcast every week as well. And I really enjoyed your discussion this, this past week uh, w- uh, with, with the pro golfer whose name is eluding me at the moment. Cause I'm Jamie O'Neill. Thank you. And uh, Jamie's going to, and, and if we can just, and Jamie's going to be a, Taking some serious cuts in the in the pro long drive ranks, coronavirus permitting. Awesome, coronavirus permitting, like literally everything right now. It's it's uh, yeah, I mean that that's our our entire lives are coronavirus permitting. Uh, but one of the things. Ken, coronavirus- one thing I do want to ask you, being the baseball expert yes. around here, oh. in your mind, will we have a major league season of some type this year? Will it happen? It feels like. They are intent on it. Uh, 
it certainly feels like the owners are doing everything they can right now to get the idea out there in the public consciousness that we're about to have a baseball season with the idea that if you get the fans into the into it and expecting that there's going to be baseball, then you can probably hold things over the players' heads in terms of what they're trying to do to further reduce their salaries and make them come to the table. Um, now, if you ask me whether we should have a baseball season this year, uh, even though I am one of the biggest baseball nerds that you know, I'm still at best eh, on that, honestly. Because, uh, I mean, if we're talking about coronavirus permitting, like one of the things that we got to realize right now, just as a as a society and as a country and as a world in general, is that and we were talking about this before we started the podcast, that things are going to be changing pretty drastically about, about our, our lives going forward. And one of the things that desperately needs to change is that if we learn anything from this, and I hope we do learn something from it, it's valuing the idea of valuing humanity over short-term immediate profits. And I don't know that bringing baseball back at a time where there are still so many hotspots in this country and the curve is still going up in so many places in this country, I don't know if exposing baseball players to that kind of potential danger just because we want to be entertained is the best thing for us right now. It's the best thing we should be learning. Um, and I know this is a comedian's podcast and we're going real, real serious here, but I, I genuinely want to kind of push the pause button and hold off on that until we can assure the guys who are going to be putting themselves out there in close quarters for, you know, 80 to a hundred games that, you're not going to be putting yourself in significant risk and significant danger of this. And let alone not just the players, but all of the workers who surround baseball from the people working on TV to the people working the clubhouses, the people who have to staff the hotels that these people, the players will be living in these uh, whole hundreds and, and thousands of people actually are going to be putting themselves at a higher level of risk and not, you know, being in nearly as financially comfortable a a place to be as, as most ballplayers and certainly not most owners who are doing nothing. So, yeah, I, I, so it's, it's a long, complicated answer. I'm not sure you wanted one when you asked the question, but. No, uh, I'm, I think that's something that, that going forward, however, I'm asking the question in a lot of ways because I think it's something that all the sports needs to seriously talk about. Yeah. I honestly, yeah. I, to me, I find in, and I love, I love sports. I love I love sports, and I think that and sports have gone on through famines, wars. Sports has stopped wars. Sports mm -hmm. is, has has ignited social movements. There's a lot of good that comes from athletics, but I think here the most good athletics can do is standing down for now. I yeah. think I think that a, that if a sports league came out, for example, if if Major League Baseball put out an announcement Monday and said, we're not having a season this year. We're, we, are, we are going to stand down and not have a season, but, we'll, but at the same time, we're going to be in our, our clubs and our facilities will be in support of the people that are trying to deal with this, that are trying to deal with this virus. I think that would go much farther than trying to figure out now, can we have a first, can we do something, say, like the 81 baseball strike? We have first half champion, second half champion, going through all these different scenarios of how of how we can cobble together a season just for the sake of trying to have one. 
that's where I was coming from. No, I I think that answer is a good one. It's like can't I mean I think it's something we should really discuss in sports in many ways. Is I think in a way this can be a very beneficial thing for athletics as a whole to take a pause and discuss where do we go going forward? Where do we go in the future? How do we get some of the magic back? How do we get the fans back? What kind of changes do we need to make in our locker rooms and on our ball fields, for example, to make sport more inclusive? I think there's a lot of questions that we should be, a lot of good discussions and a lot of questions that should be put on the table. And now that there is no cheering and there are no ball game games at the moment, that's the perfect time to really sit down and have those discussions. And in fact, I mean, I say, let's use this time to serve moving us forward. Absolutely. And, and jumping off of that point for a second, before we get into the meat of our discussion here um, is the, the idea that if sports were to uh, go with, what the scenario you're discussing in terms of saying that, no, we're, we're still pushing the pause button until we figure out a lot, uh, a lot of important issues. That is also an opportunity for sports to tell the world that, yeah, in order for us to play right now, we would need to be testing the vast majority of our players just about every single day. And what's the one thing that's holding a lot of this country back right now from going to the next phase of, of the reopening process is the fact that there are, so few tests available in so many major cities. Chicago is certainly one of them. Um, New York absolutely is one of them. And this would be an opportunity for sports, if they were at all concerned about you know the society beyond their bottom line, to say that, yeah, we could be you know hoarding all of these tests for ourselves, but we realize that they could be put to a much better and much more important use for everybody else in our home cities. But that would require owners to look beyond their their profit margins. And we know that Owners are uh, not fond of seeing anything beyond whatever whatever short-term profits are directly in front of them. So, Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. So that is a, a very uh, a very depressing way to segue into uh, what should be a very fun discussion, honestly, today in the podcast. Because today, uh, I don't know if you know, is um, well, you know, today is May fifteenth. I, I would assume, uh, looking at any calendar, but uh, May fifteenth happens to be the birthday of uh, one George Brett. And wow. See, you know, I didn't even know that one. I didn't, didn't plan that. Yeah, I just saw it. I didn't even uh, know that one. Uh, How and, great is that? Happy birthday, George. Yes. And in your honor, we're going to be talking about one of the days that humiliated you most uh, for, for a little while. It, uh, because <laughs> today we are discussing, we're going back in the Wayback Machine to July 24th, 1983, the Pine Tar Game, the, the infamous Pine Tar Game, uh, the, the Royals and Yankees. And this is the first time uh, preparing for this podcast that I had a chance to watch the Pine Tar game in its entirety. And one of the things that struck me most about it is that it's 99% of the game is a very, very normal baseball game. It's, it's exciting. It's, it's got lead changes. It's got players, great players doing great things. Dave Winfield crushes a, a home run. 450 feet into the monuments in left field. Don Baylor hits a clutch triple to give the Yankees to tie the game up for the Yankees in the sixth. And Winfield drives them in to give them the lead. It's back and forth. Brett has two hits to break a slump going into it, but it's just a regular game for up until two outs in the ninth inning. And then all of a sudden Gossage comes in to face Brett's with the game on the line and the Yankees try and hold a one run lead and Brett homers. And it becomes a super dramatic game. And then less than five minutes later, 
it becomes the most batshit crazy game that you will see <laughs> in the entire decade. And it's fascinating to me how a game that, that, it, that has gone down in baseball history as just one of the most bizarre incidents kind of just almost appears out of nowhere. And, and after what's already a satisfying game, did, I, did you get that same sense watching the, the game in its entirety? Most of it that it's like, this is, this is regular up, up until the very end. Pretty much. I mean, because I do remember, I remember the game. Mm. I mean, I remember the game, me being, yeah, 12 year old me remembered the game and all I could, and I remember my mouth wide open about what is this about pine tar? It's like, it's a home run. Stop cheating, Bill. I was, I'm yelling like Billy Martin's cheating. That's what, that's why I was thinking Billy Martin is cheating right now. This is Billy (laughs) Martin being Billy Martin. But yeah. at another level, no, it was a, it was, I mean, it was just another day in a, it was another day in a baseball season. I mean, you had two teams that were still fighting for, you had two teams that were start. I mean, when we were, we're coming off the all-star break, we are looking at, we're looking at for, in the case of my Royals, we're still in the hunt in the AL West. We're still in the hunt. And this was back when, remember, no wild cards. Right. For all our younger fans who may be listening to this, remember, there's no wild, there was no wild cards here. You had to win the division. You got nothing. If you won 100 games a season, but the team in front of you wore 101, you weren't going anywhere. You were watching on TV. There was one, there's one seat per division in the playoffs. And we're still in that. And we're still in a definite fight for the playoff position. And in the AL East, so is the Yankees. So this, this game mattered. And yeah. both teams played like it mattered. Like you said, we had, I mean, I mean, we had some names that you rarely, I mean, that brought back some memories of some names like Leon Roberts. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez, he was, oh UL man, Washington. he was such a prospect. UL yeah, Washington. I mean, we, yeah, you John Waitin stealing bases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John Waitin was- being, being prehistoric Craig Biggio. <laughs> and being a speed catcher and stealing bases. And, and of course, there's the Yankees. And I still, to this day, can't fathom how the New York Yankees didn't win more with the lineup they had. Yeah. well, Because the mean, Yankees were a strong baseball team. You, you talk about they could, their, their records both going into this game. Uh, they, they were both kind of at that point in the season in, in late July where they were, as you say, both in contention. But neither was particularly great at this point. That... Uh, the Royals, I think, were still one below 500 going into the game, and the Yankees were, I think, eight over. So it's the kind of it's the kind of game where you realize that you've still got a shot, but you've only got two months and a week left in the season at this point. So if you've got a shot, you've got to kick it into gear now. Yeah, you got to run. Yeah, I mean, every win counts. Yeah, and even though they were, yeah, the Royals were under 500, but were still in striking distance. They were like five back. Yeah, going into that game, so they still, I mean. Like you said, you have to. Now's the time. We have to push it, and we got to start putting a lot of wins together. Yeah. To, we got to start putting a lot of wins together because if we don't, then we're going to find ourselves out of it. Yeah. We're going to find you're going. We're going to walk into September out of it because that's kind of the the thought process back then. And you know this, but again, for our younger fans who may not quite understand it. Again, you had to. You wanted to be in. You wanted to be within three or four games in September to right. give yourself a chance. If you were kind of out of that, you weren't making. I mean, if you don't make a move now, you won't get a chance to make a move. Especially if you're dealing with teams that were. If you're dealing with teams 
that are that are that are starting to like find their that are starting to hit their stride because in both the AL East and the AL West, you had the you had the White Sox in the West that were hitting their stride, hmm. and they just can't. I mean, they were in a situation where they couldn't lose, and in fact, yeah. just calling up, yeah, just calling up the just calling up the um, the standings from that year, the White Sox ended up stretching out the lead on the Royals to twenty games by the end of the season. Yeah, that, they won the, the division by twenty. The yeah, Yankees ended up remember. losing the division to the Orioles by seven games, and they finished third. Mm-hmm. And they finished yeah. third. I mean, I looked at. I mean, wow! Look at that East division in in eighty three. To know you had five teams in the East that were above five hundred: Orioles, Tigers, Yankees, Blue Jays, Brewers. That year, all above five hundred. Out West, you only had the White Sox won the division by 20, and the second-place team, my Royals, were four under, 500. Mm. That's what what the stakes were going into this game because you had two teams, especially Orioles, White Sox, who at the time were, if you don't start making a move in them now, you won't get the chance to make a move. In the case for my Royals, that, I mean, that win was, they needed that win. They needed yeah. that win. They needed every win they could get, and it still ended up at the looking at hindsight not being enough. But still, that's that's what baseball was back then. You have to make if you're in a chance to make a move, you better make it, especially when you start getting into August. Yes, and that that's what makes that ninth inning of, of the Pine Tar game such an important moment for both teams uh, at that moment and in retrospect too, because. It, it, the ninth inning is 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 such a dramatic turnaround of events where it it starts out it feels like just kind of fait accompli where the first two batters make out uh, there there's no drama at all and you all Washington goes down two strikes uh, at that point and you figure the the fans are on their feet cheering so you figure it's it's one more strike it's over this is easy one two three ninth and then he barely sneaks a small a ground ball single through the infield. And that brings up Brett, and that's their one shot right there. And the way the Royals lineup is structured, too, you just even looking at the stats, you realize how important George Brett was to, to that 83 team and really the Royals teams of the early 80s entirely because you've got Willie Wilson leading off, who's, you know, speed entirely, but nothing else in his game. Like he's one home run, mm-hmm. I think, into today's game. Uh, UL Washington again is a speed guy, but not much power. And then all of a sudden, George Brett shows up with, uh, I think he wrote the stats down from that day. He was goes, going into the game 352, 19 homers, 62 RBI. Like nobody else in the lineup comes close to that production. Like that's not even that exactly that, yeah. but that's what George Brent, Brett meant to the Kansas City Royals. Like, like before we started the podcast, talk about this was George Brett. And you started, and as a Royals fan, you start taking this for granted. George Brett, you got to the point where you realized by like, especially as, as the seven, when George Brett first was a day-to-day player with the Kansas City Royals, groomed in the Royals farm system, we thought this guy was going to be, st- I mean, the, the early scouting report was he's steady, he's steady, He'll, he may hit maybe 280, give us 15 to 20 homers, knock in 70 a year, and, and we figured that would be good. George Brett had grown by nine, by the eighties to be guaranteed 325, 3100 every year. Yeah. He was the guy, his wins above replacement was off the charts. Yep. It 100%. was, I mean, 
In fact, there. I mean, th- that stat you can't even you can't even imagine that stat that high for Brett. That's how much he meant for the he meant to the Kansas City Royals. He was the guy that made every. If George Brett wasn't hitting, none of the other parts worked. Right. None because if none if George Brett wasn't wasn't hitting, the offense just didn't work. If George Brett is on fire, that opens the door for so many other people, especially when you start getting to that lineup below him. I mean, how mm-hmm. McCray said he has a how McCray had said often one of the biggest reasons I have a career is George Brett. Yes, because they. I mean, and that. I mean. If if you got Willie Wilson, for example, if Willie Wilson gets on base, and actually Willie was not a was a solid contact hitter, Willie mm-hmm. would get on base. Teams would have to structure themselves different because of George Brett. Yeah. Team, you had to you had to game plan against him because you knew if we get one on, if the Royals get one on, especially with the speed the Royals had, because the one thing the Royals had was good team speed. And with the speed the Royals had, you know we can't pitch around Brett. We have to pitch to him. You have to challenge him. And George would eat. I mean, and if you pitch, a, George could hit any could hit any pitch. If you tried to junk ball him, he's hitting it. But if you have to pitch to him and you have to go mano a mano and you have to play him honest and you have to and you have to go with basic fastball. If you have to go basic fastball, change up. George is going to kill that. You yes. know he's going to put that in play. He will put that in play. It doesn't have to go over the fence. He can, He's going to drive that thing at least a warning track or some good line drive that's going to be an easy base hit that George has enough athletic ability to turn into a double, and Willie Wilson has enough – and a Willie Wilson or a Yule Washington's going to score off of it. So that's what George meant. Now George is up at this moment, bottom of the ninth, one on. You know Yule Washington is fast. Is fast. You've got to make some certain compromises because all George has to do is touch it, and mm-hmm. UL is going to get the third. Yes, and to or your point, maybe even score. Yeah, George Brett specifically changes this game because the way that this game played out, it was clear up until George Brett came to the plate with two outs in the ninth that Billy Martin didn't want to use Goose Gossage. Uh, he didn't want to go to his his Hall of Fame level closer. He wanted to finish it. Dale Murray came on in the uh, in the top of the sixth. And he was lights out. And I think Martin just wanted to ride him out, I guess, for that the rest of the game and save Gossage for another day. But when Brett came to the plate as the threat in this game, the Royals the Royals realized this is your one shot to, to pull off the miracle and take this thing. And Martin realized this, in, this is the one guy where I got to go to my guy to try to stop him. And uh, and that's what set up uh, an incredible uh, confrontation in the ninth inning where Gossage, it's clear, is just going to be like you mentioned uh, fastball changeup. George Brett crushes those guys. Gossage eliminated one of those pitches. Gossage was just going to be like, OK, here comes the fastball. Let's see you hit it. And that first pitch of the at bat, Brett crushes it to left field and it just goes foul. But you realize that's a warning shot that, yeah, I'm, I'm timing your fastball up, Goose. What you going to do about it? <laughs> exactly. And because he's an idiot, his his response is, oh, well, here comes a faster ball. And Brett not just gets out in front of that, but almost comes out of his shoes getting out in front of the second pitch. And that's the one he crushes on the line to right field that as soon as it leaves the bat, the Yankee announcers just go, uh-oh, uh-oh, yeah. which is a hell of a home run call. Like, 
I would love to see like a World Series game where the ball leaves the bat and you just hear Joe Buck going, ah, shit. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, but that is the thing. I mean, but that again, I mean, I wasn't exactly using that terminology at 12 years old, but when I saw the ball leap off, you knew. You oh, just yeah. knew. Yeah, you knew. Was, yeah. And and also going to your point, I mean, looking, I mean, I mean, as much as I dislike Billy Martin, as much as I couldn't stand Billy Martin, one thing you one thing you will say for Billy Martin, the man was very shrewd. Yes. He always had his one thing about his, he always had his his he always had at his fingertips what the situation was. And he understood that this situation is I'm gonna need goose as much as I right now I'm in a I'm in a part of the schedule where I can give goose some time off. I'm I'm going I'm doing a wet I'm doing a swing of teams in the West Division right now. I want to get a, these are teams that we should be getting wins off of. But I also know that come next week, I've got Toronto, I've got Toronto and Detroit, who I'm fighting with to try and keep pace with Baltimore in the division. I want I want to have Goose's arm ready because I know I'm gonna need him for those. Yes. And that I'm gonna narrow. need him for the yes, I'm gonna need him for those games. Right. And that was an era where Gotham would be going multiple innings like that. This was before the era of one inning closers. So you'd have to rest Gossage's arm because you'd figure when you brought him in, you'd be relying on him for two, maybe three innings at a time uh, in those all important division games. So absolutely. It, it makes all the sense in the world that if you can steal this game without having to use him, then you're setting yourself up for a much better scenario in a week where you're going up against the teams that might be directly in front of you for the division. And the thing about Billy Martin, because uh, after Brett hits the home run, that really struck me is as the most Billy Martin thing, is that before Brett crosses the plate in his home run trot, Billy Martin is out of the dugout talking to Tim McClellan, the umpire, and saying, check the bat. So yeah. you, knew, you knew going into this game that everybody in the Yankees knew that there was that there was pine tar above the legal limit on George Brett's bat, and they were just waiting for a moment where he hurt them to say, okay, let's come out and talk about this. And they picked the most dramatic point of the ball game to, to do it. Uh, <laughs> do you know uh, offhand the reason why pine tar above, I think it was 17 inches on the bat was considered illegal in that era. I figure you would be able to tell me that more than anybody I, because I, I've been, I've been reading about the pine tar game for years. And I still don't understand the rule. I went to the biggest baseball I went to the biggest baseball expert I know, my grandfather, hmm. who who was a who was a manager, who was a little league coach, a manager, played played semi pro ball with played semi pro ball in his younger days, and had been an umpire for sixty years. He nice. couldn't tell me. <laughs> he couldn't tell me why. And I went to him and said, "Grandfather, uh, what's the pine tar rules?" I don't know. <laughs> he, said, he says that's a, a he said and and he didn't like billy martin he said this is just billy martin being stupid this is yep. just billy martin being billy martin trying to outsmart everybody pine tar i don't even understand why there is a pine tar rule why is there a pine tar rule there there is a very good reason your grandfather didn't know uh the pine tar rule other than billy martin trying to be smart and that is the pine tar rule is the fucking dumbest rule in sports history the reason why you cannot have pine tar above 17 inches on the bat is because 
1970s baseball owners were the cheapest bastards you will ever encounter. Uh, there was a guy named Calvin Griffith, an owner of the Twins, who I guess is the guy who pushed for it. Uh, Calvin Griffith, by the way, total piece of shit as a, uh, just as <laughs> owner as a person. Like you mean you crazy. mean he's a, you mean he's worse than Charlie Finley? Yeah, <laughs> Charlie Finley was cheap, but Calvin Griffith was cheap and a racist prick. Like he was famous for giving speeches in Minnesota to Twins fans and saying the reason why he moved his team from Washington D.C. to to the Twin Cities is because Washington, D.C. had black people, and he didn't want them in the ballpark. So, yeah, piece of shit already. Obviously, he never saw the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> Calvin, Calvin Griffith, long, long before Chris Rock, Calvin Griffith believed the only black people in Minnesota are Prince and Kirby Puckett. Puckett. <laughs> or back uh, then, or back then, well, there was no Prince yet. The only black people in Minnesota were Alan Page and Carl Eller. <laughs> uh, so Calvin Griffith decided one year that he was spending too much money on baseballs that were getting thrown out of play. And in his mind, he thought that there were too many baseballs getting thrown out of play because there was too many instances of pine tar on the bat coming in contact with the baseball and the umpires looking at the smudge and going, well, we can't use that anymore. So Calvin Griffith pushed major league baseball to add a rule to its official rule book stating that you cannot have pine tar above the 17-inch limit because he didn't want them on all the baseballs because he wanted to save money on, on, on Rawlings. Like, that's it. That is the reason why this game happened in this way, because owners are cheap. And it, it, it's, it's the ultimate baseball owner thing, where let's create a short-sighted rule that, for a minimal amount of profit, and let's hope it doesn't blow up on our face ever again. Hmm. So that's what that. So see, see, I I'm glad. Hey, now I'm glad to know about that. Yeah, glad that to know because that is just that's unbelievable. That is just absolutely crazy. Yeah, and this this is what MLB owners do all the time. We're we're talking earlier about how no no baseball player today is ever pushed uh, and is ever given a marketing push, and nobody knows who baseball players are outside of baseball nerds like us. And one of the reasons for that is owners are always so short-sighted about immediate profits and right now about just trying to game the union and, and win the labor negotiations instead of thinking about long-term what we do about, about marketing these guys and making the sport more popular and making it more profitable 10, 15 years down the road for when this next generation becomes the people who spend money on baseball tickets and baseball packages and baseball internet subscriptions and stuff like that. And it's, I mean, these are, are different things, but it's the same issue always of, of baseball owners just saying, no, this is getting in my way of making even more money right now. So we got to do something to get rid of it and long-term consequences be damned. It's, it well, is one thing I want to ask is how much is a, how much is a regulation major league baseball? How much, is, how much is, how much, how much does that cost to get one? I mean, and we're talking uh, about regulation baseballs in 1983. So what, like five bucks at the most, if that, I yeah. mean, if if that, I mean, five dollars to get a base. I mean, I mean, even if it was, because now, how I wonder how much it is now just to get a regulation ball. I mean, the last time I've seen, I'm I'm talking like getting a, a regulation game ready ball for your can't be any more than eight bucks, because yeah. I remember getting re- good. I remember getting a bucket of balls for like thirty. You get a bucket of balls for thirty. You get a bucket of game ready balls for thirty dollars back then. I mean, 
you get, I mean, I'm talking about like a bucket of like 50 regular game ready balls, mm-hmm. 30 bucks. And then, I mean, yeah. So, and, and, and you're not paying that. I mean, you have a made some, you have a made somewhere in a place where you're paying people a dime a day to make yeah. the ball to begin with. <laughs> you're not getting killed on labor costs. What is the, I'm now I've learned something. See, this is why you, this is why you listen to the Ken Schultz podcast. This is why you let this is why you this is why you come here because I didn't know that. I didn't realize that the person who who stabbed the Washington senators in the back is a catalyst (laughs) for this rule. Yeah, yeah. So I I am your 24-7 source for obscure pine tar rule knowledge, apparently. (laughs) And I'm I'm glad to be that and bring it to the Outsports Network here. So because of uh, because Calvin Griffith is the cheapest bastard in baseball history, that leads us to this next moment where Billy Martin is out of the dugout and is telling the umpires to check the bats. And uh, and so in this moment, were you watching this game in real time as it happened? Uh, I ended up hearing about it afterward. I okay. mean, I ended up hearing about it afterwards because I, I mean, I it was all. Let me just put it this way: it was all over every newscast. Yeah, it was all over every this. This was all over every newscast. This was all. I mean, this was on Sports Center. So there's this incredible moment at about two or three minutes after this, where where Martin is out badgering the umpires, and the umpires then take Brett's bat and just uh, kind of stare at it for a while, like like uh, like the opening scene of two thousand one, where uh, all all the the apes are gathered around, and one of them suddenly grabs grabs the uh, skull bone and starts using it on, on the others there. It's, it's almost like they're, they're looking, wondering, uh, do we, yeah. uh, do we evolve if we touch this? It's, it's <laughs> this very weird tableau and, and there are occasional shots of George Brett in the dugout, just kind of staring back warily going, I don't know what's going on. I've hit a, a, a home run that's turned this game around. We should be happy. We should be still playing. This is, this is weird. Uh, and then, and then they all of a sudden, it. they're at home plate, and the next thing you know, there's Rick Cerrone also like backing his manager at that point, yeah. or whoever that was. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute, the catcher's like, "What are you doing?" I'm looking at this, I'm like, "What are you doing?" Mm-hmm. And the weird thing is, there's no. Yeah, one it was Rick Cerrone. <laughs> there, there's no one from the Royals who's out of the dugout right now to talk to the umpires to figure out what they're doing or what's going on, or to even have a say in, in whatever conversation they're having. So everyone's just kind of standing there waiting for the next thing to happen. And then, oh boy, does it happen. As Tim McClellan just kind of walks, takes three steps toward the dugout, points at him with the bat, and then raises Calls his fist to the outside. And then Brett, George Brett, somehow manages to channel like Trent Reznor, Henry Rollins, and it's like Lewis Black ramping up for his closer at the same time. And just that charge out of the dugout is one of the most famous pictures in baseball history. And every year when Brett goes back for the Hall of Fame inductions, when they bring him out, they always play it on the Jumbotron. And you always hear the crowd kind of roar in response. To yeah. It. So it's I remember crazy. when I first saw this, it was that same day. I'm watching, I'm watching CNN headline news. And this was the... This yeah. was the top story of the sports part of CNN headline news. And it immediately starts with George Brett exploding out of the dugout. And I'm looking at this like, why is George Brett losing his mind? <laughs> why is George Brett going nuts? So then, I mean, later that night, happened to check out SportsCenter. 
And and yes, to to younger people, there was Sports Center back then. <laughs> <laughs> there was there was Sports Center. And now, in fact, I'm looking at it right now. I'm why I mean I've I called it up right now. And now now there's one thing. They're measuring it against home plate. They're measuring in the back. Mm-hmm. I didn't know home plate was like an official ruler in baseball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's I they and I, then and then next thing you know, you have Greg Nettles like pound his glove, like, yeah, he's out now. Oh no. Yeah. Well, Nettles, <laughs> There's apparently, George. Nettles apparently was one of the players in the Yankees who kind of first got tipped off to it. So that uh in the stories I've read, he was the first one of the first guys to bring it up to Billy Martin that hey, he's got pine tar above the limits. So Put that put that away for later, just in case. So Nettles was kind of one of the instigators of all this. Uh, so that that was not just him celebrating. That was the I specifically have got you. You know the uh, his great rival for who is the best third baseman in the American League. He put one over on Bryce. So that was like a personal uh, vendetta satisfaction on Nettles' part too. So that that's also fun. And so as Brett rages out of the dugout and and charges straight at McClellan. I, the part that, that that really struck me watching it this time is that he, it takes all three umpires to intercept him on the way out. And uh, I think one of them, Brinkman puts Joe Brinkman puts George Brett in the headlock. And <laughs> so you've got this incredible picture, incredible TV of George Brett screaming out, that's bullshit. That's horseshit. Yeah. The umpire's arm around his chin, looking like he's putting him in the goddamn sleeper hold, just trying anything to get him to calm down. And you have this red-faced man who also has not gotten rid of the chaw of tobacco in his cheek as he's <laughs> screaming these insults and screaming these vulgarities at the umps. And it's just this, this image of like pure white-hot anger that you almost never see at, at a baseball game. And I can imagine just, just watching that uh, in, in the 1980s, just how weird that had to be. Uh, seeing that on, on Sports Center highlights, yeah, it was ve- no, it was it was wild to me because you never saw that from George Brett. George right. was not the type to, I mean, George was a fiery competitor, but it was within the confines of the game. Like George, if you brushed back George, he wasn't going to charge the mound. You, yeah. He wasn't going to do it. George's attitude was, I'm not going to charge the mound. What I am going to do the next time I see you up, I'm going to take, I'm going to take you to, hey, I'm going to hit a double off you, hit a home run off of you. Yeah. I, but I mean, I'm just looking at the very the, one of the most interesting things was how quickly the bat was absconded away yes. from the game. I mean, it's like, and it was it was almost as if they were under armed guards. They just <laughs> get the bat out of there. One of the Royals clubhouse officials chasing the ums to try <laughs> and get the bat. Oh yeah, there's that great shot of like five or six people racing down the Royals dugout tunnel. Uh, one right after the other, each one, I guess, trying to get in pursuit of that bat to to make sure that it doesn't get, uh, you know, destroyed or thrown away or God knows what they were going to do with it. And I, I love, too, that the Yankee broadcasters mentioned that the guy that took the bat off the field into the dugout and into the clubhouse, Gaylord Perry. Because, of course, of course, Gaylord Perry. <laughs> Gaylord. That was, wait a minute, that was Gaylord Perry? Yeah, yeah. One of uh, the Yankees play-by-play guy says, "Yeah, and Gaylord Perry's got the bat, and he's going into the the dugout." You know, <laughs> the man most notorious for the spitball in baseball history is the guy. Oh, who's, I know, Gaylord Perry. How many how many different substances did he put on that ball? Whenever uh, I think sure. of whenever I think of that, I still think of that scene in Major League. <laughs> you mean you put snot on the ball? 
<laughs> where where he's talking where Eddie Harris is literally going through all the substances that yep. are on the ball. Yeah, I, I'm, pretty, of, I'm pretty sure he was inspired by Gaylord Perry. That, oh, that's God. oh, now you want to talk about? See, that's that's the interesting Gaylord Perry walking away with the bat. That's yeah, uh, I love that little detail. And so one of the reasons why I, I have a theory too about why Brett is so mad in that moment because I think it's the confluence of two factors that you almost never saw from the public George Brett persona, but that are a big part of who he was as a ball player. Part of it was the fact that this was the Yankees and specifically the Billy Martin Yankees that were kind of getting another one up on him and taking away one of the most dramatic home runs of his career. Because George Brett, to this day, like you talked about as Royals fans, how much you hated the Yankees. George Brett is the personification of that. He loathes the Yankees. Like even, even now, after his career has been, after almost 30 years after retirement, he almost can't stand to be in the same room with people who are on the Yankees. Can't stand to have conversations with them just because it, it went that deep with him, that, 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 that level, because they ended his, his year and ended his dreams so many years up until this point uh, that that just kind of became part of who he was. And the second thing that I think factored into it, and this, uh, this is admittedly a little more amateur psychologist, but George Brett had one of the worst dads in baseball history in terms of especially great players. Like in terms of bad dads, I think of like Mickey Mantle's dad, Ichiro's dad, and George Brett's dad as, as kind of like the inner circle bad dad hall of fame. If you, if you ever go to Cooperstown and then see like, an exhibit of a 40 year old man screaming at a five year old, like George Brett's dad would be like the, the model of that. Uh, George Brett's dad throughout his entire life decided that his other, his brother, Ken, who you remember Ken Brett uh, was right. a in the seventies, Ken Brett was like the golden child of the family that could do no wrong. And his dad decided that Ken Brett was going to be the guy who made this family famous so Ken Brett was the one that he doted on, he spoiled, and that he encouraged throughout his entire childhood and his adult life. George Brett was the family fuck-up, according to his dad. Like, he was the <laughs> one who would come home with, like, all Ds and an F and would just, they thought of as someone who was going to be pumping gas for his entire life. And even when George Brett became George Brett, one of the greatest hitters in baseball history, he could never satisfy his dad. There was nothing he could do that could make make his dad admit that he was a worthwhile person, let alone a son that he loved. Like, and the most famous example of that, and I found this in researching for the pod today, um, the year that you mentioned earlier, 1980, where George Brett hit 390. Supposedly, at the end of the year, he was talking to his dad on the phone, and his dad asked him, you mean to tell me you couldn't have gotten five more fucking hits? <laughs> that That's the level. So... I think that there is some of that coming out of George Brett right now. That 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 in that moment, that's 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 the scars that that you're seeing come to the surface of spending your entire childhood with a father like that. And and so when he had a moment where the entire world was unfairly screwing him over, uh, I think that that's that's the 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 source of that kind of level of snappage. I. I, I could I could see I could see that because you know that I mean that I mean that's a very I mean that's a generation that now you don't see as much you probably won't be seeing as much of that but 
that I mean that generation and in a sense Ken you and I grew up in that generation of of you know the tough I mean that was the really hard tough love generation except that wasn't tough love that was just tough there was yeah. no, there, there was not a lot of love there because I'm mm-hmm. I've read a few read a few articles on this on on those things myself and it's like you wonder how in the world you wonder world how any dad wouldn't be proud of a of a son like a George Brett. Yeah. Even yeah. if it was the one you thought you didn't think was going to make it. But you know that's that's something my grandfather always told me growing up. It's like it's all he says, it's always the person, it's always the person that you think can't play worth figs is the person that ends up getting to the majors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cuz you don't know how, how you're motivating them. Uh, I mean, he's and- like it's always the person that you don't think. And he even said that. He's like and he would say that a lot in regards to, I'm thinking like that, but really thinking about him right now, because he actually, I mean, I remember watching this and it's like when they first, he's like, and he was telling me, I remember that night he's there, just had to be at the house. He's watching. It's like, Hey, I was like, Hey, grandfather, what'd you think about George Brett? He's like, he's like on one hand, on one hand, it was Billy Martin being stupid. On the other hand, what you saw is a person that everybody said that could said wasn't good enough. And now he's more than good enough, and that's just a competitor coming out, Absolutely. and that's what it is in many ways. That was the, that was the competitor coming out. But I mean, one thing I do want to point out, though, is this guy. I mean, and this is just something important. I mean, I was Gaylord Perry getting the bat, <laughs> and how important that was that the Royals got their hands on the evidence and appealed this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the appeal, I mean, it, it was brilliant, too, because it's one of the few times in baseball history where a game has been protested and the league president said, yeah, actually, that, that your protest makes sense. Because, um, uh, because honestly, as, as we mentioned earlier, the pine tar rule, the source of the pine tar rule is completely stupid. And there is no way that pine tar actually helps you hit a home run. That, that it's so... At, at some point, I think the uh, the president was Lee McPhail in that era, and at some point he issued a ruling that essentially said that yes, the umpires did enforce a rule that was on the books, but the rule this I think the phrase he used was the spirit of the rule uh, was it, it essentially stupid. That the, the spirit of the rule is that yes, in in black and white the rule is that this shouldn't have happened. But we all know that this is not actually helping you hit a home run. So to take away a home run because of the pine tar is is essentially overreach, I think is what he ruled. And of course, that sent the Yankees into into a rage. And I think Steinbrenner and Billy Martin especially were were, uh, you know, up in arms about now we're screwed because and especially because, as we talked about in terms of the standings, the Yankees are chasing like there's five teams who are all kind of competing for the division at this point. So every game really counts for the Yankees right now. And what they thought they had uh, a win in hand suddenly becomes, you know, most likely a loss like that's huge at this point in the year for them. And so when the game resumes uh, at the very end of, of the clip on MLB.com that we're watching, which I love that it's, there's an inner title in there that says 25 days later, days later. <laughs> as if somehow this has become a zombie flick. Uh, mm-hmm. 
And so you see the game resuming in mid-August in front of like maybe a thousand people in the stands at Yankee Stadium. And the first thing that Billy Martin does, because he's Billy Martin, is he tries to have his pitcher appeal to each base with the idea that let's check and see if Brett touched each base and uh, on his home run trot. And then because the new the umpire and crew at the resumption of the game is different from the crew from the original game, he then comes out to argue uh, that how do you know that he touched the base? You weren't here because he's Billy Martin. And this is the part that that maybe I love the most is that the umpires, as soon as he comes out, the umpire pulls out a signed affidavit from his pocket from the umpire and crew of the previous game saying, Yes, George Brett touched all the touched bases. Every base. <laughs> legal home run. And at that point, in terms of Billy Martin, how big an asshole are you where the umpires know they have to come to the game with a signed affidavit in their pocket in order to play and resume the game? Like, that is the most Billy Martin moment. That's a, that no, no, that's of. the most Yankee moment. That's, yeah. that's, new, that's beyond Billy Martin. That's yeah. New York Yankee. That is Steinbrenner right there. Oh, yeah. That's that's the boss, right? That is that's Steinbrenner right there, looking for every looking for every edge. Mm -hmm. That's and and that's what and I mean that's the thing. I mean, there's only there's one other team I think that would do that. There's only one other team in baseball that I think would go to that length, and that's the St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> that's insane. That, and that is the mid and that is the evil yankees of the nl the st louis cardinals they would go that route and but that i mean that's the that's the yankees for you it's like one thing i read back the, way back then you know i've been trying to dig for it i've been trying to dig for it sports illustrated after this whole incident wrote an article wrote a short little article. It was like their baseball writer. I think it was Ron Feinwright who wrote on how the pine tar incident should have gone. Hmm. It, and basically writing after really scanning and looking at all the rules and all the corollaries on the rule, what the umpire, what the ump crew should have told Billy Martin when it happened. And basically they went through a lot. It went through a lot of minutiae. It went through a lot of minutia as far as the rule, because apparently within the rule book, there are a number of counters to that rule that were already in place. And he said, had the umps known about this, they could have diffused Billy Martin and you would have never had the replay 25 days later. The thing that interests me is it took until 2010 for them to amend this. <laughs> yeah. Cause MLB, I mean, again, that, that, that is also a very baseball thing to do Yep, we've got this kind of loaded handgun in our rule book, and it's still there. Uh, now let, let's put that off, and let, let's let's just hope it doesn't come up again. And uh, yeah, honestly, the, the only surprise when you tell me that, the only surprise I have is that it didn't come up again again at some point at an even worse juncture, like in the playoffs of the World Series, to embarrass baseball even further. But I'm glad they got around to it eventually. I guess is eventually beats not at all, which is also how baseball tends to handle that. Wow, and the Yankee, um, the results of that were—I mean, one thing noticing the results of that were costly. The Yankees ended up falling to fifth place three games out of first, but three games out of first. Yeah, see, that's the thing. Like you said, there's still that pack, but now the Yankees are at kind of a disadvantage. I mean, one one great thing, one beautiful but heartbreaking thing for me watching the game again and watching the end of it. 
because one of my favorite royals saved that game. Oh gosh, yeah, Quisenberry, yes, yeah, yes. and that was a Quisenberry quiz comes out with the save, and uh, if there's one one person, I one person who it was heartbreaking to his passing. Yeah, the day of his passing was very was a very shocking day. Because going into it, I know that he had been sick at the time, but there was a lot of signs that hey, he was on he was on the road back. Things were looking good, and then for him to, and then to die. I mean, it it came as a sudden shock to see him. I mean, that was kind of a that for me that was a it was a great thing to see because I always loved the way he pitched. I loved that sidearm. I loved mm-hmm. the down under sidearm delivery, and when it was working, it was unhittable. But no, mm-hmm. that was a tough thing. That that was a rough thing. That was, I mean, I'll admit, shed a tear looking at that. I totally I'd forgotten you'd save that game. Yeah. And, and Quisenberry, like one of the like legit good guys of baseball of that era too, right? So it's someone who, uh, Roger Angel loved to write about him because he was someone who would be very open in terms of uh, not kind of just giving standard ballplayer quotes, but really talking about kind of uh, the, the, inner worries that he had as, as, as a closer and knowing that he wasn't coming out with like goose gossage fastballs, but still figuring out ways to, to do his job and, and get guys out and to be a great closer for 10 or 15 years, uh, borderline hall of fame closer, I think too. And another, and just another great guy with the fans. Yeah. I mean, every, every year, especially back then there was the Royals caravan where they would literally go and, and teams still do this, but they would literally go, they literally have some of their best players once they come. Uh, they literally would have some of their best players during like November, December, going out to encourage people. Hey, buy season tickets, see the team, and a lot of teams you'd send those. I mean, uh, and a lot of teams, you know, the bench guys would go. You know, the guys who are kind of like the util that utility infielder would go. For no, for these, the stars went. Nice. There was one year on the caravan. There was one year the caravan came to Omaha, came to our neighborhood grocery store where where they had a Royals ticket office at the store. Hmm. See, that's that was Ewing Kaufman. That was that was the genius of a Ewing Kaufman. He would literally have no. You can buy Royal. I mean, I want to buy Royal. You go where the people are and sell tickets where the people are. And the year and the year they came and this was at my neighborhood grocery store in Omaha, mind you. The caravan stops off at this grocery store, and it's Brett Quisenberry and Willie Wilson. Oh, jeez, that's yeah. a day. That it's, is a yeah, day. It, Brett, and for and for me, being not being like nine years old, and seeing George Brett and Willie Wilson and Dan Quisenberry, and getting to talk to them, getting their autographs, and having them shake your hand, and and. And being glad to be, that was the other thing, being glad to be there and being glad to interact with that. That is one memory I have. That's one memory I'll always hold close is how good, how good a lot of these guys were. They didn't big, George Brett never big timed anybody. He, I never saw him big time anyone. Willie Wilson never big timed anybody. Now, if he would have just diffed, if he would have like big time, some of the Coke dealers would have been happy about that. <laughs> uh, but but if, and if, and Quisenberry if, was a really was, was genuinely good guy. 
Nice. And that's one thing. That was a team full of good guys. And two years after that pine tar incident, uh, one other guy who came to our buddy Bianca Lana came to the Royals in 85 year. And I interviewed him many years later as I was getting my start as a, as a cup reporter myself. And I asked him what made that 1980, what made the 85 team better than what they were? Because I'll be the first to as a Royals fan, I was looking at our opening day lineup thinking this is not, if we can break even, we're having a good year. Our starting pitcher on opening day can't even buy a drink. (laughs) But fall that year, I'm a high school freshman, and I'm seeing my Royals in the World Series beating those hated St. Louis Cardinals. And I was asking, buddy, what made that team better than you think? the way the question may have come across is he may have taken umbrage. Instead, he smiles and says, you know what, what made, what made that team special is that we all, we were great. This was truly a group of good guys who enjoyed being in baseball, enjoyed where they were and loved being Kansas city Royals. And we just came together. He said, we, there was a level of trust that I never had seen in my career prior on that team. We all knew we had each other's back. When, for example, he talked about the little thing between himself and Dave Letterman, the <laughs> whole team had his back through that. Nice. Because at a, on a number of teams, players would be like, ignore it, forget about it, don't answer it. The Royal, he, he said, George Brett came and said, hell yeah, you answer that. <laughs> what does, said, what does no, the mean? whole team was like, no, we have your back. Go ahead. Who's this guy to tell us who we are or make fun of any of us? And the team did that. What did Letterman that, say? That was that entire team. Oh, when oh the remember it was after Pete Rose. It was after Pete Rose uh broke the record for all time hit record. Because that happened during the eighty five season. So um David Letterman decides who can I pick on who can't mm. hit the bait who who is not a good hitter. So he came up with this thing called the Buddy Bianca Lana hit counter. So it showed <laughs> Pete Rose, it showed like Pete Rose 4256, Buddy Bianca Lana. Oh, he had a he had a hit tonight. Well, <laughs> so he went at so so he's going after Buddy Bianca Lana. Now Buddy, now to Buddy's credit. Buddy gets interviewed about this. And Buddy says, I'll tell you what, I'm a lot closer to Pete Rose than David Letterman is to Johnny Carson. Now that <laughs> now, now nice. that is a now that is a sore spot with David Letterman at the time because there was the talk of that that's when the talk started coming who secedes Johnny Carson. I mean, even back at, even though it was another it was another seven years before Carson would reti- would leave the chair at the tonight show. There was still that there were still those rumors of who would be next, and that nece- and that necessarily wasn't going to be Dave. And that is a sore spot with Dave. Mm-hmm. So he goes at Dave, and everybody says, Okay, he's coming. Okay, this this platoon shortstop is going at probably one of the up-and-coming popular people in our popular culture and consciousness now. So there was that big, I mean, there was that, and then Buddy has a great World Series. He hits like 278, a lot of clutch hits, great plays in the field, and eventually goes on the show. Nice. And eventually get Letterman invites him on the show. But the thing is, was just that spirit and that camaraderie of that team. And they were all great guys, especially great, because I remember going to games that, that summer. They were always great to the fans. 
They always had a minute, even during batting practice. Now, this is when they were in their office preparing, yet they always had a minute to sign an autograph. That was the one thing about being a Royals fan when old man Kaufman ran the team that, I, that, that we treasured as fans was that here's this major league team with a very minor league mentality as far as being good to your fans and good to your, being good to your fans and extended all the way up to the front office because Kaufman understood when you walked, when you go out to Harry Truman Sports Complex and you look at the license plates, you saw, yes, you saw Missouri plates, you saw Kansas plates, but you also saw Nebraska plates, Iowa plates, Oklahoma plates, Arkansas plates. You even saw, and you would see license plates from, from the Dakotas. They, we, I, I say often the Royals are to the Midwest what the Braves are to the South. And for a long time, that's what it was. And when the Royals won a world, when the Royals won the 85 World Series, that was celebrated from Fargo to the Ozarks. And that's what that that's what that meant. And when we were and when the Pine Tar incident happened, people were pissed off from Fargo to <laughs> the Ozarks. I mean, that that's what that meant. And in a sense, that was the new I mean, it was us against the powers be it the Yankees in our own league or be it against the, the, the arrogant, the arrogant beer powered St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> That's we, I mean that in a sense, the pine tar incident and George Brett's reaction to it in many ways, the, in many ways it, it was quintessentially Midwestern in the sense that in the, in the middle of the Midwest, especially we don't take kindly to bullies and the Yankees are perceived as such. And we don't take kindly to unfairness. And we felt that was unfairness. We take a particular umbrage to that. And I would say that uh, to, to the people in the Midwest who take umbrage at unfairness and, and fight back against bullies that the pine tower game ended with perhaps the sweetest sound of all, which was Yankee fans chanting bullshit. Bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> yeah, no, but it wasn't. No, the the real yeah. BS was Billy Martin even pulling this out. Yep. And yeah, the, it was. But to me, the best part is that this game clowns Billy Martin and Goose Gossage and George Steinbrenner all in once, and I can't think of a better ending for the game than that. Uh, I'm all for I'm all for such things, especially yeah. George. Yep. <laughs> especially. Yeah. Uh, so at uh, moving on from the game, uh, we've got the weekly segment we do uh, as long as social distancing remains a thing. We are doing social distancing book club on the Three Strikes You're Up podcast. Carly, do you have a baseball book you want to recommend to everybody? I do. Excellent. I, I do because I'm because I've been I've been reading a lot. I've been getting back into reading a lot, and I picked up a book a few days ago I hadn't read in years. Slugging It Out in Japan by Warren Cromartie and Robert Whiting. Ooh, crow, love it. Which is an, I mean, if you want to know about that, well, first off, Warren Cromartie growing up was another, was one of my favorite players. I, and that year, I mean, as much as I liked the Royals, another team I really liked was those Expos. Cause a, mm-hmm. cause a player who I got to know, a player who I, who I got a lot when he was a White Sox, I was one of the first interviews I got as a journalism student was with, was with Rock Ranks. Nice. Was with oh, Tim God. Raines. And Tim, I always liked Tim Raines. I mean, to me, Tim, I always said that my grandfather would say often the next Lou Brock is right there. He appointed this kid for the expo's name, Tim Raines. 
and Reigns was such a great player. But that Expos team, another, I think one of the best teams that did not get to a World Series was like was those eighty one was a was the eighty to eighty two Expos, and that was a good team. I mean that they had such a core nucleus. You had you had Andre Dawson. Imagine a lineup that has Andre Dawson and Warren Cromart and Warren Cromarty and Tim Raines leading off, Gary Carter, Steve Rogers pit. Steve Rogers is your is, is the ace of the pit is the is the ace of your bullpen bullpen. Bill Gullickson was the second starter. Gully who ended up going who ended up playing with Cromarty in Japan. Hmm. He went a couple of years before he ended up playing at Yamiuri. But the thing is, but it it got a good insight to where baseball was at the time, a good insight into that exposed team, why they were good, why why that team, in spite of all the obstacles, was that good, but at the same time, why that team was busted apart. And it was mainly because of a front office that really didn't understand what they had and a succession of managers after Dick Williams got Dick Williams may took this pile, took this group of potential talent and he was, and one of the great and unsung managers in major league baseball made them a winning team. But then the front office got stupid, pissing Williams off, firing him and bring in someone who didn't understand the talent. And the team broke apart. And one of the people, and one of those players for whom it broke apart was, was Cromartie and Cromartie had a choice either going i think at the time was either going to the he had two contract offers on the table one to go to one to go to the um to go to the San Francisco Giants or one to go to the Yamiuri Giants and he chose the yen over the dollar and then wow. and it's a book that also gives you a good insight if you there's in fact there's a group of books Robert Whiting is a journalist is a journalist from the United States has lived in Japan has covered Nippon Pro baseball for for like 3 decades he has two other, another book I would also recommend is You Gotta Have Wah, which is basically an extensive history of American players going to Japan. And if you really want to get an inside of what it's like to be a Gaijin ball player in Japan, in Japan, that book and Slugging and Cromartie's book are two excellent, excellent resources because they get Cromartie literally gives you a day to day look into being not only playing in Japan, but playing for the Japanese equivalent of the New York Yankees. Mm. Imagine yeah. being this player that's highly touted and you're going to essentially the team, the national team. The Yamiuri Giants are the national team. They are the Yankees to in Nippon Pro Baseball. They are the team. And at the time he went to the team, he was one of the highest play, paid foreign players that brought brought in ever, and he was playing for a legend. At the time, the manager for the for the Giants was Sadaharo O. And one of the great things about the book is he talks about getting a when he was going through a slump. And a lot of American players, especially American sluggers, they have that early period where they really start fast. And they're like, oh, the and the and the all and all the Shimbun Sports Dailies talk about. Ah, uh, the Americans are conquering Basaburo. You become, you go from, you go from Godzilla. You, you start as Godzilla, but then one teams get some film on you, and then you learn, and then teams say, okay, big American Gaijin slugger, 
throw him throw him all the junk we can find throw him every shooto you can find and then you have to learn then you have to learn the fine art of hitting the of hitting the japanese screws curveball combination known as the shooto and mm-hmm. your your batting average plummets south and you go from godzilla to hello kitty for a while <laughs> and you have to learn a whole you have to learn you there's so many things you navigate and that and and Warren's and Cromartie's book especially really goes deep into that. It really right. goes deep, deep into just dealing with all these, dealing with all these pressures, dealing with first thing, dealing with pre dealing with spring training in Japan, which is like military training. <laughs> it's just yeah. Dealing with, dealing with going to Guam for spring tra- dealing with, he, I remember Cromartie in the book talked about, I was, I got in the shape of my life. I got into the best shape of my life and it still wasn't enough mm-hmm. for three practices a day, eight hours a day, yeah. getting ready. Yeah. Getting ready. It was a, I mean, it was a really great book that talked about a lot of things, including and giving you an excellent day by day account of the year where it all came together when they won, when they ended up winning the Japan series. I can and imagine. he was a big part of it. And he was just a big part of it. Just, it's just a really good book. Also, it was really great. Also, baseball, baseball film suggestion. I'm going to throw a baseball sure. film right. suggestion, Mister Bay, Mister Baseball. I'm selling. In fact, yeah. read, yeah, read it. And in fact, um, a a good deal of Mister Baseball is based on Slugging Get Out in Japan. Nice. A good deal of that movie was based on was based on it. Whiting was a consultant to it. Hmm. I mean, that's one reason why the movie basically was as accurate as it was. Was as accurate as it was. Whiting threw a lot, threw them a lot of tech. He was the technical advisor to it. Said, "No, make sure you get the uniforms right, get ballparks right." I mean, that's one thing. It was a. I mean, I really enjoyed Mister Baseball. Awesome. So my book this week, I'm gonna go actually into like a 1980s Saturday morning cartoon PSA. Where if you'd like to learn more about the Pine Tar Game, have I got a book for you? Uh, a couple of years ago, a <laughs> New York sports writer named Philip Bondi wrote a book called, the, called oddly enough, The Pine Tar Game. And he goes into great detail of not just the Royals-Yankees rivalry, but kind of the, the roots beyond that, where the Kansas City Athletics back in the late 50s, early 60s, essentially served as a major league farm team for the Yankees and how that kind of started Kansas City's enmity toward the New York Yankees in general. And then he goes, he profiles Brett, he profiles Gossage, he profiles Steinbrenner and Martin, and goes into great length about the game. And it's where I learned a lot of the details we talked about in the podcast today between the, uh, the, terrible, the terrible genesis of the Pine Tar Rule and Calvin Griffith uh, about George Brett's dad. All that is in Philip Bondi's book. It's really a compelling read, and it's a great narrative of this really bizarre, unique day in baseball history. It's definitely worth checking out. Um, so anything else you'd like to plug while I still got you here, Carly? Mm, just uh, if we get a chance. And in addition to this wonderful podcast, every Wednesday on out sports, check out the transporter room, check out the transporter room. It's a, it's a, it's along with all the other out sports podcasts, any place where fine podcasts are distributed anywhere on the internet. Um, excellent show myself and co-host Don Ennis. Giving you the be- giving giving you a combination of sports and science fiction. So if you're into sci-fi, so if you're into sci-fi and you're into sports, this is a it's the place to be. The transporter room. When you have to like 
if you if you have a stay at home order, stay at home with us. I think that is the the best possible slogan uh, for the transporter <laughs> room, and it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's a wonderful crossing of many geek streams that all of which I like. So it is it is kind of the perfect listen if you're if you're into sports nerdery, sci-fi nerdery, or just people who like social justice and like when good guys win and pushing for good guys to win. I think that's, that is the podcast to listen to. Well, I've, uh, that's, that's out sports in general. After yes. all, courage is it's contagious. Fun. Courage is contagious. Yes. And uh, this podcast has been delight has been contagious, Carly. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And I am definitely going to check out Philip Bondi's book. I mean, one yes. of the, one of the best baseball writers in our country putting out a definitive history of this. I'm going to give it a read. It is well worth your time, as has been this discussion. So thanks very much. Thank you for having me. It's been great.